One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Streams of Winter, live stream 23. Victarion Greyjoy. Hello and welcome to the Streams of Winter. I'm Yoke Boy and we are Radio Westeros. Thanks so much to you all for tuning in to our live stream this afternoon. And I've got to say there is a heavy thunderstorm overhead. So if worse comes to the worst, we'll and we go missing, we'll be back. So stay with us. Today we'll be talking about a character who gained a POV in A Feast for Crows, a Greyjoy warrior captain with a dark heart and a flaming hand. It's Victarion Greyjoy, everyone. In Feast, we journey to the Shield Islands, where new Ironborn King Euron seeks to consolidate his rule by reaving and pillaging along the coast. Beside him is his brother Victarion, who is eventually sent east to Marine to do Euron's bidding. However, Victarion is a stubborn brute and has ambitions of his own that lead us sailing forth into the winds of winter. What will happen with that magical dragon horn? How will Daenerys receive Victarion as he looks to deliver her a fleet of ships? And what does Euron have up his sleeve to ensure his brother does not betray him? These are, of course, huge questions. And so, to help me answer, here's the other half of Radio Westeros, Lady Gwyn. Uh, yes, we have a lot of great questions. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. We're glad to be back with another Streams of Winter live stream. And very happy today to be welcoming our friend, Emily of the Erie from the Isle of Faces podcast, Emily, thank you. Hi, thank you. Excited to be here. Well, we are excited to have you. Uh, we've got some uh, great discussion here in our longish document. <laughs> so, <laughs> so much to talk about, of course, as usual. So uh, send it back over to you, Yoke Boy, to get us started. Yeah, I put together about a dozen questions to really get to the bottom of Victarion's character and where he's going to be going in the upcoming novel. So let's begin with the first question I'm going to ask you guys. Victarion and Euron share a backstory that will forever mark the pair as sibling rivals. Euron impregnated Victarion's wife, which led to Vic unapologetically beating her to death due to the shame he felt. He stops short of killing Euron, given the taboo around kinslaying, but it's plain to see that these dynamics are far from resolved. So what can be said about Vic and Euron's sibling rivalry, and how do the brothers relate to each other in the text thus far? 
Well, you know, this rivalry is clearly something that's incredibly deep-seated, given the amount of time, page time, and probably otherwise, that Victarion spends thinking about uh, his older brother. They have a very contentious relationship, but Victarion just can't seem to stop thinking about it. He himself is the classic, dutiful, younger brother in terms of their own nuclear family. He's the third son, classic third son in that regard. He once wholeheartedly devoted all of his energies to their father's heir, Balon. He was a a devoted servant, if you will, of Balon. And after his death, Vic makes this kind of half-hearted attempt, the way I saw it. I mean, he he certainly had lots of support, but I don't feel like his heart was fully in it uh, to claim the sea stone chair for his own. I think that proved that, you know, someone who's a talented war leader isn't necessarily a talented politician. He eventually ceded this claim to his next elder brother, Euron, because, of course, he had a superior claim being the elder, but not without a lot of internal angst. Victarion hates Euron for things that have occurred in their past, most notably the seduction by Euron and death at Victarion's own hands of Victarion's third wife. And given that Vic was barely restrained from killing Euron with his bare hands as well, uh, thanks to a cultural prohibition on kinslaying, I think this was probably the event that led to Euron's banishment by Balon, which happened really just a few years ago, right before the main story started. So what's interesting to me is that Euron's perfectly timed return from said banishment, which coincides with Balon's death, as we all know, for a very good reason, uh, doesn't seem to have elicited a single shred of suspicion in Victarion's mind. Euron, who's unencumbered by this devotion to cultural norms or mores that stopped his younger brother from killing him, has basically sailed in, killed his third brother, all of whom were older than him, and put himself in this prime position to seize the throne. But Victarion apparently doesn't even contemplate that Euron could have been involved. He just accepts his return at face value, as far as we know. George does call him dumb as a stump, after all. But proving that he's not without a certain low cunning, to use one of George's favorite phrases, he does eventually uh, see through this sort of maneuvering that that occurs around Euron, especially on the shield aisles, when first Euron leaves all the actual work of the battle to him, and then he names uh, several men who had supported Victarion against him to the lordships there. What Victarion fails to see is the strategy behind Euron's sudden apparently sudden decision to send him to Marine, and obviously much more on that shortly. Yeah, you know, when you're reading any of these POV chapters, you basically can't go more than like a page or two without Euron coming back up. And some of that makes sense contextually, like they're, you know, they're in the same scenes together at times. Euron's back on the scene, and as things progress, he he moves from Challenger to Balon's seat to Victarion's new lord, and, and that's kind of a an interesting transformation. You know, on top of this, Victarion was shaped to be a follower, as he puts it. So his thoughts being focused on whoever takes the Seastone chair, like that seems inevitable to me. But all that said, you know, that's that's not the only reason that Euron just keeps coming up in, in Victarion's thoughts. You know, it's not strictly a man who's just pondering the relationship with his new seat of power. Most of the time when he thinks of Euron, he also thinks of the connection to his dead wife and what he says Euron made him do. 
Uh, sometimes he muses further what he, you know, would, could, might do to Euron as well. Um, I've always found it really interesting that Victorian continues to hold his vow to Balon that he will not slay his brother. You know, you'd think, okay, maybe things have changed a little bit. You know, I'm not beholden to Balon anymore. He's not around. You know, Euron seems to be coming in and sweeping in for power. But no, uh, he he doesn't do that. Uh, you know, he he continues to hold to that vow. That continued unwillingness to become a kinslayer really reinforces the idea that he is a follower and that, you know, family does mean something to him. You can see his brother Aaron realizing this as well um, when he's thinking back to what caused him to kind of, after the king's moot, you know, go on his little sojourn. Um, he thinks that, that you know, well, Victorian's not going to do anything, I could tell. You know, so it seems like Victorian does have some sense of a moral code here as all this displays. It puts him in stark contrast with Euron, you know, who again demonstrates how little the bonds of family mean to him. I suspect if we got a Euron POV, we would see Victorian's name maybe a few times, maybe when he's right on page with him. You know, while both Victorian's chapters and Aaron's chapters are rife with thoughts of the crow's eye, it just doesn't seem like that same family focus is there for Euron. He has such major ambitions and plans, so to me that's probably taking up a majority of his focus. You know, we can't say certainly exactly what those are, he doesn't have a POV, but someone capable of doing what he's done to his enemies, to innocent people, his own crew, making them mutes, and especially to what he's done to his family. All that's evidence enough that he's not really sparing a lot of thought for the bonds of family or humanity in general. So. My belief is that Euron's thoughts about Victorian begin and end with, how can I best use him to get what I want, and how do I get rid of him once I've done that? You know, uh, as for whether we'll see any Greyjoy kinslaying moving forward, it's certainly possible. I'd argue it's, you know, probable or even inevitable, given what we saw in the Forsaken sample chapter. But whether that comes directly to pass between Euron and Victorian is less certain to me. You know, it's in Victorian's thoughts constantly. He, you know, he wants revenge, but he can't make himself actually do it. You know, beyond some loose plotting, he hasn't really ever moved against his older brother. So I don't see Victorian winning the sibling rivalry, so to speak, only because I think he'd hesitate to harm Euron while Euron would not hesitate for a moment to end him if he felt he needed to. Excellent. And I, I think there's numerous examples of Victorian actually looking up to Euron in his A Dance with Dragons chapters. In spite of the rivalry and all the wrongs we can judge Euron for, Victorian, underneath the bravado, I think holds a fair amount of grudging respect for his brother, who is sharper and more worldly than Victorian. They are ironborn, after all, and even with Euron's probable hyperbole on some of his tales, which ironborn wouldn't respect a seasoned sea captain that's travelled half the world? So it's perhaps no wonder that Victorian justifies incorporating Makoro into his crew by recalling that Euron had his wizards, or that Vic, when making crucial decisions on how to navigate around the Isle of Yaros in in approaching to Slaver's Bay, basically thinks, what would Euron do here? I can't imagine such thoughts run two ways, and as Emily said, I doubt very much that Euron reflects on any of Victorian's strategies during his decision-making process. I think that in the family, Euron has this big personality, and on some level, Victorian feels a degree of awe behind all those layers of resentment. 
Okay, so I'll move on and I'm going to ask, following the invasion of the Shield Isles, Euron ultimately decides to send Vic east to collect Daenerys and her dragons. So what exactly is the plan ostensibly, and what might both men be secretly planning that goes unsaid? In order to best one another, as we've brushed upon, Emily. Yeah, I, I love this question. Um, so I'll preface this, I'm not like a naval warfare expert. So the minutia of Victorian's plan of actually like winning Slaver's Bay and, and getting to Daenerys, I won't focus too much there. But I do believe that his high level plan, uh, which is probably as far as it goes, uh, is essentially to prove himself by slaying her enemies in battle, land and just try to make his way to wherever he assumes that she might be. You know, then he'll make her what he assumes is this incredible offer. Join him in the Iron Fleet, sail to Westeros with the dragons, take the Iron Throne. Just one small detail. Let's get married. You know, <laughs> so there's a ton of holes in this plan. I think we can all see. Uh, we've seen people with similarly loose ideas of, uh, you know, marrying Daenerys not think it through fully. You know, I think Victorian hasn't really plotted the details out very far beyond what I just said. He's not a details guy. He's a man of action. So when he gets to the city, I kind of just expect that he'll land, look around for the biggest and most impressive looking building and kind of march off in that direction until he's intercepted by some kind of guard who, you know, he'll either fight or follow to Daenerys' counselors, depending on who that guard is and, and what their position is. You know, this obviously brings up another issue with, with Victorian's plan. You know, Daenerys is not currently in Marine, uh, that can obviously change. But as we saw on the ship's voyage, Victorian's been denying that she's dead and, and killing anyone who suggests it to him. We've seen it happen many times with the prisoners that he takes on captured ships. So let's say that she, you know, is back and they somehow are thrust together on page, right? I assume his general offer will be, I fought your enemies, I brought you the, the fleet, come with me, together we'll, you know, with your dragons, we'll take the Iron Throne, and, you know, we'll, we'll get married and you'll be my beautiful dragon queen. If he's smart when he's pitching this, he doesn't mention Euron at all to her and tries to seal the deal before she catches wise to the fact that he's a younger brother, that he's an envoy of this younger brother, or just realizes in general that there are better Westerosi options than any Greyjoy. Um, <laughs> I, I haven't even mentioned the smoking hand. I feel like that probably is going to factor into, you know, her consideration of a marriage proposal. Does that work for or against him? <laughs> yeah, I mean, she does seem to be, you know, heat resistant. So. <laughs> anyway, uh, I do think that we all kind of expect at some point for this plan to fall apart. Victorian could die, Daenerys could not return, or he could maybe get sick of waiting, finally come to believe her dead and, and you know, take off. Uh, she could return and, you know, this is a long shot here, but she could decide to honor the existing marriage that she's already in. But if all else fails, let's not forget that Daenerys has been very selective about marriage offers throughout the series thus far. She's turned down several. She's wanted to turn down Hisdar, but the political pressure was too great. You know, Victorian's quite a bit older than her. He's got his <laughs> volcanic arm. You know, maybe she surprises us and, and he, you know, likes this offer. He is a warrior and she obviously liked that about Khal Drogo. But I think we all kind of expect her to, uh, you know, cringe away from this proposal. <laughs> yes, probably. No. As for Euron, what, what he wants, I mean, let's face it. 
he wanted to get Victoria, not Westeros. He had a lot of support, Victoria, that is, at the King's Moot. And that obviously hasn't been forgotten. Look at, you know, I, I mentioned this already, how Euron named these key men who could oppose him in favor of Victorian as lords in the shields, where he fully expects them to fail. Uh, so that's a very, a very clever strategy, which Euron saw through. I mean, um, Victorian saw through. So to me, this mission to Daenerys seems kind of like a feint, like get rid of the troublesome rival in the short short term, while in the long term, he's leveraging this dutiful younger brother to possibly succeed at his mission. So it's a win-win for Euron. And, and it's probably a lot less about bringing Daenerys back to him than he claims. Obviously, if Euron wants Danny for himself... In his mind, he could simply take her. I mean, he is Euron Greyjoy, after all. It's like, who wouldn't want him? He's amazing, you know? Uh, so what he isn't ever going to do is go to her as a supplicant, because that's bargaining from a position of weakness. Look at poor Quentin. And that sort of thing is best left to someone like Victarion, who like his predecessor in the Targaryen suitor game, is as likely to get roasted by a dragon as he is to tame one, in spite of his magic horn. So if Victarion were to succeed against all odds, you know, that's great. Because guess what, guys? Even if Victarion convinces Danny to marry him, we know that Euron has absolutely no compunction with killing his brothers. <laughs> So you see Victorian think about how, Dan, you know, Danny wouldn't be the first woman that he made a widow. Well, you know, likewise is to his brother Euron. So but if Vic doesn't succeed, Euron continues his conquest arc in Westeros, parks himself in King's Landing on the Iron Throne and waits for Danny to come to him. Now she's the supplicant. So um, or at least, you know, she's coming from a position of weakness. Like Emily said, Victorian very likely hasn't planned much beyond sailing into Marine, blowing his horn, winning the girl, and sticking it to his older brother. In fact, he seems kind of obsessed with that aspect of things. So this is all in spite of the fact that he knows Euron's gifts are always poisoned and that Euron is not to be trusted. So, by the way, I think there's no doubt that Victorian thinks of Danny as, you know, just this young girl who's going to pose no, you know, opposition to his offer. And he's really grossly underestimating everything about her, from her dragons to her political ideals. Um, but most significantly, he's probably unaware of who her main counselor in Marine is, someone who's going to have very good reason to caution Danny against any involvement with Greyjoys, and that is Sir Barristan Selmy. And that's not to mention, you know, Jorah Mormont and Tyrion Lannister, who will be jostling for roles in her inner circle, and know a good deal more about who's who in Westeros than Danny does. And we'll have more on those intersections later. And finally, Emily touched on something that our patron TJ pointed out in Discord in a Discord conversation uh, earlier this week. Danny's still in the Dothraki Sea as Victorian sails in Marine. And no, he can't sail over there and get her from the Dothraki Sea, just to clear that up. <laughs> it is very likely going to be a long time before she actually returns to the city because she 
we expect has you know this whole arc where uh, she's going to finish that journey through the Dothraki Sea, go somewhere else, come back. So Victorian's game in the short term is going to become one of survival. Survive the battle, survive the horn and the dragons, survive whatever Makoro and the followers of R'hllor have in store, which we'll be discussing shortly, and survive the intricate politics of Slaver's Bay, which will inevitably be way over his head. (laughs) So at each step, his chances of survival grow ever slimmer, especially from the meta perspective of there being far too many point of view characters in that area once the battle's concluded. Thanks for those answers, guys. Very good. And one notable maneuver by Euron is to give Victarion a slave known to us as the Dusky Woman. What do we think of this mysterious character thus far? And what are the possibilities that she offers as a character as we enter the Winds of Winter territory and sense that, you know, she's capable of being part of, you you know, significant plot points? Emily? Yeah, uh, well, the Dusky Woman's arguably the closest person to Victarion. Uh, Certainly right now she is. You know, while he has his old friends and allies such as Ralph the Limper, as well as this growing relationship that we'll talk about with Makoro, she spends the most private time with him in his cabin, Um, you know, multiple types of private time. (laughs) Um, She is often chosen to tend to his hand over the maester and then later over Makoro as well. Victorian, of course, is suspicious of her as first. at first. You know, all Euron's gifts are poison, he thinks to himself when he thinks of her. But it's not long before he begins to bed her and confide in her. You know, she's mute and therefore can't talk back to him. And she, at least as he, so far as he assumes, can't tell his secrets to anyone. The trope or device of adding a silent character uh, that your POV can talk to so that they're not just always thinking directly in their head or talking directly to the reader is it's one we've seen before. We, we've even seen George deploy it elsewhere in the series, like with Jamie and Ilan Payne, or even to some extent Tyrion and, you know, some of the prostitutes or, or bed slaves that don't know much of the common tongue. But surely the Dusky Woman's inclusion means more than just a method of exposition, right? You know, she has the potential to be a lot of things, continued captive audience to Victorian being one of them. Uh, But I think we'll also see her continue to be his nurse, tending to his arm, and see where that goes. Um, You know, we'll have to wait and see what happens with that. Uh, But as far as the rest of her plans, I'll pass the torch here to Yoke Boy. Yeah, I think there's a variety of quite far-out theories regarding the Dusky Woman, that she's hiding a glass candle somewhere and communicating to Euron, or that he's warging her, and theories like that. I think the truth of a subterfuge will be less abstract and magical in nature and that Euron has given her over as a sort of Hail Mary maneuver. If she can act to Euron's advantage at some point and conduct some sort of secret plan which undermines Euron, then great. If Victorion throws her overboard before that can happen, it's no great loss to Euron. Euron is betting on Victarion being seduced by the Dusky Woman, and sure enough, Vic thinks about disposing of her several times. He knows that Euron's gifts are poisoned, yet he still doesn't act. Victarion is taking a huge risk by keeping her aboard. He has absolutely nothing to gain from a company beyond the comfort of mute companionship, and yet there she is. 
it says much about Victorian's intelligence and of Euron's estimation of his intelligence. If I had to guess, I'd say the Dusky Woman is kind of spying on Victorian and perhaps waiting for the return journey when Euron's bidding has been done in Marine with Daenerys so she could attempt to kill Vic by poison or other means. Then Euron would get everything he wants, in theory, an ironborn rescue of, of Daenerys, who would be brought right to his door with three dragons on, in tow, and Victor, Victorian is out of the way. I'm certainly not predicting or saying all of this is going to happen, and also I don't think this is Euron's only plan. He's probably got lots of irons in the fire, being sort of a complex schema. But like I said, a quick Hail Mary and hope for the best that doesn't really cost Euron anything at all or require any personal sacrifice. Lady Gwyn? Yeah, that's uh, classic Euron Greyjoy, really, I think. Um, I also think here we see a classic example of Victorian Greyjoy underestimating women. We saw it with his niece, Asha. Uh, he's with here with this dusky woman. Ultimately, it's going to be the same with Daenerys. He simply doesn't believe that the dusky woman could ever have the power to harm him. I mean, him, the great Victorian Greyjoy. What could this woman do to him? She can't even talk. You guys both said it. All of Victorian's gifts are poison. Vic has said it. He knows it. But he just can't get around to denying himself the pleasure of this woman that he's come to enjoy. He keeps thinking, eh, maybe I should throw her overboard. Eh, not yet. Because it's because he can't really conceive of her as being physically dangerous to him. So imagine the irony if Euron's poison gift literally poisons Victorian, as Yokepoi suggests. Uh, obviously, that's just one of several possible endings to Victorian's story. But in the meantime, she sure is a great plot device. She gives us this window into Victorian's thoughts and plans that there's no way we could otherwise get. And um, also interested in something that isn't mentioned much, and that's her reaction to Makoro, which is described as incredibly hostile. She actually hisses when he comes in the room. Does she know him? Does she know him personally Does she, or merely his order? Does she recognize him as a red priest? Does she have something against, you know, the followers of Relore? We don't know anything about her background. So we have no idea what makes her react like this. Does she have some sort of magical sense where she can tell his what his ulterior motives are uh, in being aboard the ship? But, you know, is obviously unable to relay that. If so... You know, is, is her loathing rooted in Makoro's probable opposition to Euron's goals? Or is it something else entirely? I mean, we don't really know. I don't know how we will know. Although Sister Winter pointed out in the chat that um, there are other mute characters who have made themselves known, like Wex Pike. So, you know, it's not out of the question. Maybe we'll get to learn a little bit more about what's going on inside her head someday yes yeah, so many possibilities with this character it's great to have a character that has been introduced to us but still has that element of mystery and like lady Gwyn says we really know very little about her so that lends itself to an array of possibilities for the winds of winter that's exciting and on this journey in a dance with dragons when we follow victorian east Although we skip the large part of the journey, 
We catch up with the Iron Fleet at the Isle of Cedars and witness the journey from there to Slaver's Bay. So how would we evaluate Victorian's mission thus far, guys? Is he a good captain? And how does the journey go, Emily? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say that the voyage itself has been entirely smooth. You know, we've had weather, losing many ships, complaints of strange seas. But all despite all that, the Lord Captain of the Iron Fleet does display this ferocity in battle. He's got tactical prowess. You know, the Ironborn follow him pretty readily. Um, I, I noticed that he seems to know the right men to trust with special missions, uh, you know, whether that be, you know, seizing a new ship or, you know, I'm thinking uh, specifically of his relationship with Ralph the Limper, which I think is probably one of the strongest he has. Uh, Ralph is who he trusts with a third of his fleet who went to trade. So, you know, that there's a large sum of, you know, slaves, goods, money changing hands there. Given the volatility of the Ironborn situation in general, Lesser men may have taken this as their opportunity to set themselves up as a pirate king somewhere, ahem, Orane Waters. Uh, but Ralph returns and continues to serve Victorian. You know, when Vic brings Makoro aboard, many of the men don't like it at first. There's lots of calls to, you know, cast him right back into the sea, including the per- the <laughs> the man who fished him out, actually. The vole, I believe it was. It's like, nah, just chuck him back in. But Victorian finds a way to turn all of this and Makoro's appearance into good news. You know, he tells them, now two gods watch out for us. Like, how could we fail? We have two gods. You know, the superstition of sailors is exploited here. You know, the few who might remain skeptical or hostile to the Red Priest seem to just be quelled in general by Victorian's force of personality. You know, while there have been a few grumblings about him, we don't sense that there's any, like, imminent mutiny coming on. They're still happy to follow their Iron Captain. In his sample chapter, Victorian decides to have three thralls each blow the horn one time. You know, this is this is about as like clever as Victorian gets. One person blowing it three times, that's bad. Maybe if if three people each blow it once, they could be okay. Um, he's thinking to test the waters, you know, and see how dangerous this horn really is. In his internal thoughts, it's clear that he will absolutely force them to blow the horn with or without their consent. He's, you know, this is happening as far as his internal thoughts. But he does take the time to give an inspiring and persuasive speech to these three men, talking of the glory and the freedom they could earn, uh, you know, if they blow the horn and live. You know, would they rather survive the day and then die in the battle to come or, you know, have a chance at glory here blowing the horn? They all seem heartened to it and agree readily no one has to be forced um, you know, to me, Victorian did not have to do this. He could have just, you know, used his iron will to make them, but he he did. And I think that speaks to his leadership. Yeah, I think it's obvious that Victorian is a good, perhaps even exceptional military leader. You know, his brother Balon was nobody's fool in terms of planning and plotting and, and as a, you know, as a lord. So, you know, he trusted Victorian with his fleet for many years, even after his ignominious defeat in the Straits off Fair Isle at the hands of Stannis Baratheon during Balon's Rebellion. And that defeat, incidentally, plays a role in Victorian's decision making on this journey um, when he has to decide whether to sail the straits inside an island called the Eros, which Yokeboy referred to this earlier, uh, or should he take the longer journey around it. And in the end, after he spends a lot of time debating and wondering what would Euron do, 
he takes the straights, shrugging off the bitter memory of his humiliation a decade earlier and ultimately finding that it was the right choice to make because not only did he get through the area swiftly, but he took three new ships, including a fishing catch, which brought him news about Daenerys, so the fact that she had disappeared from Marine. Incidentally, that was the person, the the uh, captain, the ship's captain that he strangled with his magic hand because the guy made fun of him for thinking that the Dothraki Sea was a sea. But uh, so no one laughs at Victoria Greyjoy. Uh, he has he has no sense of humor. Uh, let's let's just leave it at that. So while you know the earlier part of the journey, the one that occurred off page and kind of right at the beginning of Dance was full of setbacks and losses with ships being lost. Uh, from the time he takes Makoro aboard, after overriding the objections of a lot of his crew, he finds at every step that he's succeeding. He's reuniting with missing ships. He's taking others by force. And he attributes this success to the gods, both his own drowned god, who kept Makoro alive in the sea for 10 days, and Makoro's red god, who delivers visions of what Victarium believes is his own success and whom he now adopts as his own in this kind of bizarre dualism that Emily mentioned. We are ironborn and two gods look over us. We will seize their ships, smash their hopes, and turn their bay to blood, he tells his men to general cheers. And you know, that really speaks volumes about his leadership, you know, on, on his say-so. These fierce ironborn warriors, probably all of them devotees of the drowned god, are willing to embrace this odd fire god from Essos, ostensibly a god who's in complete opposition to their own. I mean, fire and water, it doesn't get any more opposite than that, right? And and the followers of Relor acknowledge no other gods. So, you know, there's, there's no quid pro quo happening here. Uh, so time will tell how seriously the Ironborn take this speech and the new god, but Sailors are, by and large, a superstitious lot, and if it appears that R'hllor is the mechanism that brought them safely to Marine in the end, I wouldn't be at all surprised to see a few ironborn sailors joining the night fires that are no doubt going to be lit there. Uh, and speaking of R'hllor, I think this is a good segue, perhaps, to our next question. Yes. Makoro is a great character, isn't he? Everyone wants to know more about him, so let's focus on Makoro. Following his abrupt departure overboard from the Selasori Koran, where he leaves Tyrion Lannister and Jorah Mormont behind, the mysterious Red Priest Makoro intersects with Victarion at the Isle of Cedars. They make an unusual pair, but seem to gel together in spite of their differences. So why does Victarion take a shine to Makoro, and how would we assess their relationship? So I'll go. Victarion is a highly independent, proactive character in certain respects. However, by introducing Makoro to his deck, George is highlighting the fact that, uh, that Victarion essentially needs help. Makoro comes along at just the right time to save Vic and aid the mission. After the Iron Fleet was scattered and Vic was down on his luck, of course, Makoro is even more proactive than Victarion in a sense, and ostensibly they seem like an unlikely yet great team. However, what is slowly happening between these two, I think, is that Victarion is coming to depend on Makoro. 
This is great for a time, but perhaps Victorion is gradually giving up power to an untamable force that he doesn't fully understand. North of the Wall, it's known that sorcery is a sword without a hilt. There is no safe way to grasp it. Mokoro is basically a walking prophecy, and Victorion is becoming more and more dependent and indebted to R'hllor. He can make all the symbolic gestures he wants, like the burning of innocent slaves before drowning their boat to appease both gods, naming his newly captured vessels after the Red God, but the truth is he doesn't know what he's getting himself into. Makoro saved his life, so in this sense we understand that Victorion has seen the red magic firsthand and realises how it can benefit him, but by the same token, he's being incredibly naive if he thinks he can continue to benefit from Makoro's magic indefinitely. Yeah, I, I alluded to this a minute ago. Vic might be uh, generously inviting Verlor into his pantheon, albeit for the most cynical of reasons, Relore's adherents have no room for other gods in theirs. The drowned god would be viewed as either a slave or a demon, and I doubt Victarion understands that very well. Uh, I sense danger for Victarion here, because once they all arrive in Marine, it seems pretty obvious the balance of power between these two men, currently favoring Victarion, the captain over Bakoro, the man he saved from the sea, is going to shift. With the Volantine fleet set to arrive, full of slaves who are devoted followers of Bonero and the anticipated conversion of many of the former slaves in Marine, Makoro will no doubt become much more important to the story, uh, to the politics of the region, than Victorian. Once the battle's over, Danny's people are going to be desperate to find her and remember that these new arrivals have been told that she's the fulfillment of an ancient prophecy, which no doubt will start to spread around Slaver's Bay. You know, Makoro has the power to mediate that prophecy, to preach it to new followers, and to see Danny in his flames and lead people to wherever she is, or, you know, how easily he found Victarion and, and Victarion's missing ships. I mean, oh, he's going to have no problem finding Danny, who they've all been looking for for weeks now. I think that we can be sure that whatever use Makoro has for Victarion beyond hitching a ride is going to come to fruition very quickly in Marine. Who really believes that when Makoro said, the Lord of Light has shown me your worth, Lord Captain, every night in my fires, I glimpse the glory that awaits you. Can he really mean glory in the way Victarion chose to understand him? I mean, we should remember that many of Melisandre's fires, from uh, the ones she used for prophecies to the ones that burned images of the Seven on Dragonstone and later human sacrifices, were said to be vehicles for the glory of R'hllor. Uh, also, don't forget that Makoro began by telling Victarion that he had seen his death your death is with us now, he says in Victarion's cabin. But in that cabin, we have not only Makoro, but also the Dusky Woman and the Hellhorn. All of them are prime candidates for eventually bringing about the Iron Captain's demise. Victarion assumes that Makoro is referring to his festering hand, but I view this very much in the vein of Maggie the Frog telling Malara Heatherspoon that her death was in the tent that day in Lannisport. In the twisted parlance of prophecy, 
The death in that case was Cersei. So Makoro is not being totally honest here, and he isn't saying any more than he has to say in order to get Victarion to do what he needs him to do. After declaring that he sees his death, his next prophetic statement is anything but positive. He says, I've seen you in the night fires, Victarion Greyjoy. You come striding through the flames, stern and fierce, your great axe dripping blood, blind to the tentacles that grasp you at wrist and neck and ankle, the black strings that make you dance. Victarion just doesn't see the implied danger of this statement. The flames, the allusion to his brother Euron, he just scoffs and says, I don't dance. <laughs> he's he's pretty thick. Uh, and probably he just takes to heart the words, you know, keywords, stern, fierce, blood, and he thinks that was pretty okay. So, you know, in spite of his talents at sea and in battle, his soldier's sense of honor and uh, the great value he places upon, you know, religion and social structure, Victorian isn't a politician. He's no good at the Game of Thrones. He's uh, naive, short-sighted, shallow. And we can be pretty sure, on the other hand, that if Makoro is the one who was chosen by Bonero to go to Danny and be in this position and advise her and bring new converts over to the Red God, uh, Makoro is very capable and he is going to be playing that game and playing it well. Yeah. I, I totally agree. I think, you know, I really like the prompt. I think you both covered a ton of ground with the, the Makoro-Victarian relationship. I want to elaborate on something that you said, Gwen, about Makoro's visions alluding to Euron. You know, Makoro's appearance in Victarian's POV actually gives us a lot of insight into the Euron-Victorian relationship, too. You know, just like nearly everything else that Vic thinks about, he frames the Red Priest's appearance in terms of what his brother would do. How would he make use of this foreign, mystical character? He thinks, if the Crow's Eye had wizards, why shouldn't I? When the crew rejects Makoro and Victorian refuses to drown the priest, he sells it, again, as we've mentioned, as, you know, having the favor of two gods instead of one. This has always reminded me of Euron's godliest man speech in a way, although it's flipping it's on its head. Victorian, I think, believes that, you know, both gods are watching out for him, whereas we know that's not really what Euron meant when he said that. Uh, it seems that Victorian's relationship with Makoro, his visions, and his help with the Hellhorn all point to Victorian changing and embracing the unconventional or the magical, a way to show that Victorian the follower is becoming more like his new lord, the Crow's Eye, a far cry from Victorian at the King's Moot, happy to be a facsimile of Balon. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. 
I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And let's move on to the second half of the live stream now. Aside from the dusky woman, another of Euron's gifts to Victarion is the magical dragon's horn we first saw blown at the king's moot by an unfortunate soul who soon died from bleeding lungs shortly afterwards. Victarion obviously wants to harness this horn's magical potential and perhaps gain some power over those dragons. Makore mentions that the horn needs to be claimed. And so how do we think the mechanics of this horn will play out? How will Victarion use the hell horn? Lady Gwyn. So Makoro tells Victarion, your brother did not sound the horn himself, nor must you. Who blows the hell horn matters not. The dragons will come to the horn's master. You must claim the horn with blood. And the inscriptions on the horn say blood for fire and fire for blood. And so the idea is that whoever claims the horn with blood will be its master. The horn's inscriptions also read, no mortal man may sound me and live. And this is interesting because in this, I'm reminded of the witch king of Angmar in Lord of the Rings, about whom Glorfindel the elf said, not by the hand of man shall he die. And indeed, wouldn't you know it, he's ultimately killed by a woman, Eowyn of Rohan and Doc the Hobbit. So could it be as simple as Danny, who's the only actual Valyrian in the room, claims the horn and sounds it? I mean, we're all waiting for this particular uh, trick to play out in A Song of Ice and Fire. Uh, the warrior maid, Brienne, is the odds-on favorite that people talk about a lot, applying this, you know, no woman thing to. But it strikes me that here's another place where we could potentially see this in play. There's another thing we've talked about also is the possibility that claiming with blood means that you have to kill the horn's previous owner kind of like the Elder Wand in Harry Potter. So as to that, there's an assumption here that Euron has already claimed the horn somehow, but so far we have no actual evidence of that. Euron never used the horn to do anything but overawe the men at the King's Moot. So who is the current owner of the horn? Is it Euron? It could be. And if so, must Euron die before someone else can claim it? Does he intend for his brother to sound the horn, die in the process, and in so doing, bind the dragons to him, Euron, the horn's owner? Remembering that Valyrian blood seems to be crucial in this business of controlling dragons, can someone without the proper blood even hope to claim the horn? Is that what claiming it with blood actually means? You know, claiming it with your Valyrian blood? Uh, these are critical questions, I think, and I'm not sure we can fully answer them yet. Uh, I do think that Victarion is going to go ahead and make his attempt with those three thralls, but I remain very doubtful that he's going to claim the horn successfully. In his Winds of Winter sample chapter, there's a, a scene that I find hilarious because a lot of times I find Victarion scenes very funny. He appears to be 
kind of sitting there smearing the horn with blood from his fire hand. And I wonder, it's not really expressly confirmed, but, you know, is this his attempt to imbue the object with his own blood and, and claim it before the attempt to blow it is made? Possibly because he just might be that simple, but it's really unlikely to be that easy, I think. <laughs> Uh, excellent points there, Lady Gwyn. There's another mystical horn in the story that we can kind of look to when we're trying to figure out how this kind of magic could work in the story. We we haven't seen much of anything yet other than, you know, what we saw at the King's Moot. So what I'm talking about here is the Horn of Winter. You know, there's a ton of mystery surrounding this horn as well. We're first shown the horn being called the Horn of Winter by Mance, and it's quite impressive. It's eight feet long. It's got gold bands and runes from the First Men. But Mance appears pretty hesitant to actually blow the thing, worrying that if it works and it brings down the wall, arguably the biggest defense humanity has against the others will be gone. You know, he's he's hoping, he's kind of using this as a bluff of, hey, you know, let us through the wall or I'll blow this thing. Because, you know, if you don't let us be safe, I'm taking you down with me. Saying that Tormund can blow the horn three days hence. But the plan goes out to the out the window completely when Stannis attacks uh, and shows up. Mance and his horn are captured, and the horn is uh, allegedly burned, creating quite a spectacle with yellow and green flames, shimmering runes, the whole deal. But we know that there's already some magic going on with this fire. You know, it's not actually Mance burning, it's Rattleshirt, so we can't fully trust what we see here. And to that end, Tormund actually later says that this wasn't the real horn anyway, leaving the possibility that the real thing still exists somewhere else. We don't get a ton of information about this horn of winter actually works since no one ever blows it, uh, but it's still valuable to compare and consider when you're analyzing Dragonbinder. With both horns, I can't help but notice that there's some reticence to blow it or wield its power because there are risks involved. You know, will the blower die? Will the blower actually control dragons? Is it actually a good thing for the wall to come down? You know, I don't see that reluctance lasting for long when it comes to Dragonbinder. Victorian's already picked out his first batch of horn blowers and appears ready to get on with it. But will he wait until he thinks that he has some sort of ownership over the horn? You know, how would he even gain this ownership with Euron a world away? Uh, you know, depending on, uh, you know, whether he requires to kill him or something like that. You know, does the true owner have to be in some kind of proximity to the horn? Euron, again, is pretty far away from those dragons. So there's still a ton of open questions here, I feel like. Uh, we might just have to keep reading. Okay, so on to the next question. Makara, who, who we've been talking about, is a character we'd be foolish to take our eyes off in The Winds of Winter. Very excited to see what he's up to. Like we said, he's a proactive tertiary character who, given his mystical insight and prophetic abilities, is capable of really steering the plot. Um, we're not entirely sure what his larger and wider agenda is beyond him acting as Bonero's red agent. Although he and Vic may have a common cause at the moment, he doesn't seem like a character one would want to trust wholeheartedly. So what could Makoro's role be in The Winds of Winter and where will he take Victarion? Such an interesting set of questions, I think. And I'll go. I think people are right to be suspicious of Makoro going forward, as we've discussed. He is the perfect ally for Victarion for a time. 
but Victorian would do to re- well to remember that Makoro is acting towards his own mysterious goals and that being seduced by his magical power completely would be folly. Whether Victorian is smart enough to keep a short lead on this guy remains to, remains to be seen. Makoro is uniquely gifted and it would be wise to keep some distance or risk becoming a pawn in a larger game that is beyond the comprehension of mere mortals. While Makoro's shorter-term role and narrative purpose seems to be tied to Dragonbinder and harnessing the power of the dragons, it's difficult to see or imagine much beyond that. He is so adept at reading the future that it sort of makes me wonder if George might plan to be rid of him sooner rather than later, as a character who has the sort of insight you don't want to show too much of to your readers. For that reason, I think I'm going to predict that Makoro's demise in The Winds of Winter will come, you know, pretty soonish somewhere in those, the first half of the book, I think. I've wondered if his destiny is to end up blowing the hellhorn himself at some point. After all, He's described as a large, barrel-chested guy, and he would give that thing one hell of a toot. I almost feel like he's physically built for that purpose. So it wouldn't surprise me if Makoro does something like sacrifices himself, trying to control the dragons via the horn at some stage in proceedings. As I said, he's a character George might want to give limitations to. I can't see him coming along to Westeros and predicting the future at every turn as we see him doing in dance. It would soon get old and it might make things too easy for Daenerys in Westeros. Yeah, I agree that a character like Makoro needs his limits. It's hard to imagine Daenerys, who already has dragons, gaining such a prolific and accurate seer and advisor for a long term. Uh, From a narrative standpoint, that shifts the power balance so far in her favor compared to her immediate enemies, as well as the others vying for the Iron Throne. So I have to agree with what Yokeboy says here, that at some point down the line, we're going to see him hit some sort of resistance, some limits, or take his exit from the tail. You know, to that end, I don't think it's 100% guaranteed that he'll make it to meeting Daenerys. He's been spared so far, but he's not entirely safe from Victarion's wrath. We've seen Victorian cut half a dozen throats for telling him that the Dragon Queen is dead over the course of the journey. People who probably fully believed it to be true and had some level of assurance of it. You know, I think that this was done to display that Victorian will lash out against people who tell him what he doesn't want to hear. So far, Makaro hasn't really done that, or when he has, it's been kind of veiled in prophecy and mystery to the point that it just sails right over Vic's head. When Makoro has more success than Maester Kerwin at healing Victarion's hand, Victarion kills the Maester. Much of the reason that Makoro is still alive at present is due to the accuracy of his predictions. Should his ability to accurately foretell what's come, what is to come falters, or perhaps he just tells Victarion something he really doesn't want to hear, the Iron Captain could easily turn on him. If enough of his Ironborn demand it, uh, even, and Vic is facing a mutiny, he may decide that his own life and freedom is worth more than keeping this Red Priest alive. He doesn't even follow the Red God. Right now, we don't have a ton of evidence to support Makora losing his abilities. The guy is pretty darn spot on, but there's a potential for their relationship to crumble and for Victarion to lose patience with the Black Flame. I'd be pretty interested in seeing how the priest spun things if he saw something detrimental to Victarion. We got a little bit of a hint of that, as was mentioned earlier, 
But would he, you know, continue to be able to cloak it, uh, cloak it in vagary to trick the Iron Captain? Or would he, you know, at some point decide to be honest and potentially put his own life on the line? I had already hinted that I think Makoro's first order of business is going to be taking control of that Valentine fleet that everyone's talking about, or at least it's slave crews, uh, a camping accident that were shown first, how devoted the slaves of Volantis are to Bonero and what he's preaching and how uneasy this makes their masters. And then it's pointed out that the fleet that everyone in Marine fears is largely crewed by slaves, these very slaves. And lo and behold, they're going to arrive at their destination to find Makoro, one of their own red priests, preaching the gospel of Danny and Azora High Reborn. So not only is Makoro going to drive the direction of the slaves and the former slaves who are devoted to Danny, uh, he might literally drive the direction of the search for Danny, which I mentioned earlier. You know, he's got these uber accurate flame readings and his skill at finding lost things like Victorian ships. Uh, that's got to be put to further use in Marine, where the, the one thing that is lost is really the centerpiece of the entire story there. So, like I said, he's swiftly going to outpace Victorian in terms of importance and the amount of power he can wield. And as such, Victorian really should be very wary of trusting him. But since he already considers Makoro to be his wizard in the way, you know, Euron has his wizards and now Victorian found one of his own floating in the sea, conveniently enough, I don't think that uh, Victorian's going to hew to wisdom here. So there's trouble brewing between the dynamic duo and whether that leads to Victorian's death is up for debate. As for Makoro's fate, I don't doubt that it's tied up with the horn somehow. You know, if his flame readings are as accurate as we're told, then we have to assume that Makoro knew the horn would be on Victorian's ship, which is clearly uh, the vehicle to get him to Marine that he chose in advance. I mean, he put himself on the Salisori Koran, knowing full well that that ship would not make its destination, that he would be shipwrecked, that he would be found by Victorian. He had to have known other things. Why did he, you know, need to get found by Victorian? What is it about Victorian Greyjoy? I mean, is it just that he was going to Marine or was it something else? Maybe actually what he was after all along is the horn. So, you know, I don't think he would have really needed to intersect with Victorian Greyjoy for any other reason than to gain something from him. I'm sure there were plenty of other ships he could have, you know, somehow found his way to Marine aboard. Uh, as far as I can tell, Vic really has nothing else of value for this Red Priest besides the Hellhorn. Speaking of which, I absolutely love Yoke Boy's idea about Makoro blowing the horn somehow in the end, you know, his physical similarities to Euron's mute have not gone unnoticed. However, it occurs though, I agree that Makoro's passage through Danny's arc must be brief once they intersect. I mean, it wouldn't be fair for her to be getting all the answers all the time. That said, how fitting would it be if Danny eventually meets Jon Snow with Makoro by her side, even as he's bound to have Melisandre by his side? I find the potentials for that parallel very exciting, although it doesn't necessarily need to happen on page. It could just be a parallel, you know, 
that happens with, you know, the two of them in different places, uh, in those parallels that George loves to build in the story. So we'll see. Great, guys. And so I want to move on to talking about what we learn in the Winds of Winter sample chapters. Victorian and the Iron Fleet are tearing through the Carthine naval blockade in the bay and are primed to defend Marine in the Battle of Fire. Assuming that Victorion survives this war, he's on course to succeed in his mission to intersect with Daenerys, who might make great use of the gathered fleet. But Daenerys, as we all know, is nobody's fool, and as we saw with Quentin, is not a character to be controlled or told what she must do. So what will Daenerys think of Victorion, and what will a scene with these two in it look like exactly? What do you think, Emily? Yeah, so much of the makeup between a meeting between Daenerys and Victarion depends on the dragons, in my opinion. You know, there's several reasons. So let's just start with Victarion's high level plans. You know, as we've covered, he's got a horn called Dragonbinder that he hopes to become the master of. Daenerys, mother of dragons, is not going to be thrilled with anyone who wants to encroach upon her connection to her dragons, especially without her consent. My mind goes back to another suitor of hers, Zarozo and Daxos, who also had designs on the dragons, or at least one of them. He attempts to marry her in order to invoke this Carthine custom where he can demand a dragon or anything else of hers, but what else would you want, uh, as a wedding gift. Obviously, that was not going to work for Daenerys, and she rejects him. You know, there's many other examples of Daenerys being fiercely protective of her dragons. Uh, We don't need to go into all those. I'm sure you can conjure them to mind. But I'm of the opinion that if she knows about Dragonbinder or has a hint of, uh, you know, any of Victorian's designs related to that, she's going to have very little patience with him, despite whatever ships he brought, whatever victory he he brings. uh, I think that's going to cast a huge shadow. Yeah, it will not be. It'll be an awkward introduction. Hi, I've just been trying to control your dragons, Daenerys. I'm sure she would love to hear that. So we learnt with Quentin that Daenerys will make her own decisions regarding her relationships, personnel, and of course dragons. Victorian is far too brazen and tactless to impress her on a personal level. Of course, she'll be enormously thankful for the delivery of a fleet, but she's hardly likely to be impressed by Victorian's true nature. A man who so recently burned seven innocent sex slaves alive as an offering to a law. I don't think Vic is smart or devious enough to hide his true nature from Daenerys. And altogether, it would be an awkward intersection, I think, providing Victorian is still living at that point. Danny might have limited page space to treat with Victorian, and I'm beyond curious to know how George will craft the scenes amidst the aftermath of the Battle of Fire. One thing's for sure, Victorian does not know Danny like the reader knows Danny, and this could make things very interesting as flies on the wall as we all will be. Mm, yes, it will. Uh, you know, any intersection between Danny and Victorian, though, is going to have to wait while the Battle of Fire uh, in Slaver's Bay and its aftermath play out. Uh, and then we've got Danny herself, who has to continue her quest in the Dothraki Sea and beyond. If you look at the, the days elapsed and the timeline and everything, she's still very much, you know, in the Dothraki Sea 
while this battle is playing out, she has she's still many days away from actually the events that occur at the end of her last chapter in A Dance with Dragons. So long time before Danny is coming back to Marine. Before she can go west to Westeros, she has to go east to Vase Dothrak, as we all assume. Uh, and I, I don't think it's a coincidence, by the way, that Danny, the mother of dragons, is almost certainly returning to uh, that city beneath the mother of mountains, where she's been told Drogo's spirit went after he died. Minor digression, but the point is it's going to be a while before she even knows anything about Victorian's existence. So his first job is going to be to survive to that point. Assuming that he does, you know, there's still the problem of her values. Like you guys have been mentioning, Emily mentioned that she's not going to look kindly on someone who wants to use her dragons. Uh, recalling how Zara once had designs on them and Danny uh, was having none of it. You know, another thing we should also consider, speaking of Zaro, is that he appeared in A Dance with Dragons and offered Danny exactly what Victorian's offering, a fleet to carry her westwards. And she refused because she had these feelings of responsibility to her children in Slaver's Bay. So the big question is whether following the Battle of Fire and whatever plays out in Marine in its aftermath and whatever happens to Danny among the Dothraki, will she finally be ready to head west? I tend to think, you know, the answer is yes. And also think that if she so chooses, the Iron Fleet might offer a tempting way um, for her to get directly to Westeros without having to cater to the demands that other people are going to no doubt be making of her. Things like come to Volantis to free the slaves, go to Pentos to because you owe the Tattered Prince the city of Pentos, and, and you know all these things, which are just going to be kind of more of the same things that have been slowing her down as she's making her way through the, on this big journey around Essos. Will she choose to ignore all those demands, finally take control of her own destiny and just power through to Westeros? Well, the Iron Fleet could be that opportunity for her. You know, all of which, all of this depends largely on what happens to her in Vase Dothrak. But, you know, you've got this fleet there for the taking and whether Victorian remains alive to command it or not, it's entirely possible, you know, that his narrative purpose was solely to bring this fleet of ships to Danny and then, you know, exit stage left. Uh, maybe, maybe he, you know, never makes it back. We'll see. Yeah, we will see. And yeah, I like this discussion of the intersections. Why don't we continue along with that? Marine will be a hub of intersections when the battle of fire is finally resolved in some way. There are many characters who will cross paths and the possibilities for intriguing character work is thus very exciting for all of us. So aside from Daenerys, what other intersections involving Victorian are we looking forward to? And how could they play out? And I think I'll take this first. Daenerys, when she finally returns to Marine, will be the centre of attention for sure. And George is going to have to give her room to breathe. There's Tyrion, Jorah, Barristan, Hisdar, Dario, Marwyn. All these men will be waiting in the wings for her, some of whom have never even met her and thus need to strike up an initial conversation pretty quickly. And that's before we even get to Victorion and Makoro. 
my observation at this juncture is this, just how is George going to balance all of these introductions and renewed friendships succinctly enough to make a coherent scene and, you know, to follow the narrative in Marine. We all know about the great stumbling block that George faced when he was writing A Dance with Dragons. It's called The Miranese Knot. This knot was temporarily resolved with the introduction of the Barristan POV chapters. Yet, I don't think we've seen the full scale of the writing knot un unravelling as of yet. Could this echo of the Miranese knot still be haunting and delaying George to this day? We can only speculate. But what's certain is that George has his work cut out for him when Daenerys returns to the city. We'll have to wait and see how he addresses this complex situation with the hope that it doesn't feel too much like a queue of men and a revolving door to these introductions these relationships are all very important to the story and the characters and at once we need to see a resolve to old relationships like Dario Naharis and groundwork being laid for the future with characters like Tyrion being undertaken. These pages and chapters in Meereen where Daenerys will look to take her Westerosi future into her own hands will need to be executed to perfection to match the potential for some of these long-awaited intersections. Yeah, I mean, I I see all the convergences in Marine being kind of like that, you know, like the break or break between periods or timeout in sports when subs are brought in. Danny's going to exchange the likes of his Dar, Dario's Gahaz, and the rest of the Miranese crew for a squad that's much more suited to bringing her back to Westeros. Tyrion, Barristan, Jorah, Marwyn... I think the big questions here are how George will deal with Makaro and Victoria, the very people we're discussing here today. I mentioned the possible parallel of Danny Makaro and John Melisandre, and there's another intriguing possibility of a mirror to Euron and Cersei, if that's the direction Euron goes in, and Danny and Victoria. But that's getting ahead of myself. In the short term, in Marine, Victoria is going to intersect with. Tyrion, the most politically savvy person on page and someone who's immediately going to see through this guy. He's going to see his intent and his limitations. Uh, and then you have Jorah Mormont, who was first into the breach during the Siege of Pike. He literally stepped over Maron Greyjoy's dead body to, you know, in, during the sack of Pike. Victorian wasn't there, but you can bet they know of each other. And Bear Island, of course, has a long history of antagonism with the Ironborn. It is, in fact, said to have been won away from the Ironborn by King Roderick Stark in the mists of history in a wrestling match, if, <laughs> if you can believe that. So these two are not going to like each other. Uh, then you've got Barristan, who also fought in Greyjoy's Rebellion. Wasn't on uh, anywhere near where Victorian was. He subdued Great Wick, but uh, he was on King Robert's small council. And as much as he's politically unsavvy, and in that he's got a possible point of comparison with Victorian, I don't see him trusting Victorian, uh, not for a minute, even if Victorian's fleet does sail in and save the day. Victorian is far too obvious about his designs on Danny and her dragons for Barristan, Sir Grandfather, who's very, very protective of his queen, to ever trust him or accept him. Speaking of which, 
What happens when Victarion meets Hisdar Zolorek, assuming Hisdar survives the battle? How about Dario, assuming the, the same thing? Victarion has already stated that he can simply just kill Hisdar, and uh, while Dario and Victarion have far too many similarities, I think, for the two of them to ever exist in the same space. So I'm really looking forward to how all of these intersections play out almost more so than the Victorian and Danny meeting. So I'm glad that the Winds of Winter with the timeline, you know, that we've talked about is almost certainly going to give us plenty of page time for all of this to happen for this new squad to be established for Danny and their relationships to each other to be established while she's off uh, doing her thing amongst the Death Rocky. Yeah. You know, one thing that I've always loved about Daenerys is that she has her own mind. You know, she has great counsel, but she thinks for herself. You guys have both laid out some really great reasons why most of the people in her orbit right now, or who we assume will be in her orbit, will have reason to be wary of or outright hostile to Victarion. Uh, Danny herself has reasons to keep him at a distance, as we've kind of covered, no doubt. But looking back at her past, she hasn't always listened to her counsel when they've suggested that she ignore someone, oust someone, kill someone. You know, I think back to the feud between Barristan and Jorah, for example, or everyone's concern about her involvement with Dario, the reticence of her visiting the House of the Undying. She listened to that counsel, but she still made her own choices. I think that Victorian's marriage proposal will go over like a wet blanket, but that Danny won't discount the value that he does bring to her situation. He's got ships. He potentially has some victories under his belt at that point. He's also someone who discounts women, which makes him really susceptible to her manipulations, if you think about it. We, you know, as much as we think that, or Victorian thinks, oh, yeah, I've got all these plans for her. She's very easily able to outplay him. She's just a young girl and, you know... <laughs> You know, uh, when you add the realistic chance that she may not fully trust this council that we've laid out, you know, Jorah, Tyrion, Hisdar, even Dario, you know, not all of them are necessarily guaranteed to be people she wants to listen to right now. She's never even met Tyrion yet. I think we're likely to see her attempt to kind of split the difference here, gaining the benefit of a Victorian alliance without actually binding herself to him fully in the way that he wants. I'm personally really excited to see this whole crew of characters be thrown together and to see who kind of makes it into her circle of trust and hopefully on to Westeros with the Dragon Queen. Yeah, this prospect of swapping out the squad, as you two have been talking about, is really exciting. You, you know, there's going to be so many changes on the interpersonal level with Daenerys, who, of course, is going to perhaps be changed as a person by the time she gets back to Marine. you know, after her experiences going back to Vase Dorthrak or, or whatever she's going to do in her arc there. Which leads me to the final question of the day. We've been talking about Victorian today, so is it hard to predict what's going to happen to him given the wealth of possibilities and this, this aspect of Danny returning to the city at some point? Our patron anime lover Nicole wonders... How do we see Victorian's story playing out in the upcoming novel? And yeah, the ultimate question, what is his destiny in the Winds of Winter? So personal opinion time, guys. What do you think, Lady Gwyn? Take us away. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I actually think that the House of the Undying gave us a glimpse 
when Danny saw a corpse stood at the prow of a ship, eyes bright in his dead face, gray lips smiling sadly. There's a lot of debate about this one, and I think those who see a Greyjoy reference in the gray lips smiling sadly are quite right. A lot of people think it could be Aaron, and it could be, but he's not exactly standing on the prow of a ship. Uh, so, you know, this he could be a red herring of a sore, in which case Victorian would be a good option too, especially if you consider that the vision likely relates to Danny's arc. Victorian brings her a fleet, so he is literally standing in, on the prow of a ship. But we've been saying he likely won't survive Marine, thus the corpse. So, yeah, whether the House of the Undying Vision was of him or not, I don't see him surviving his trip to Marine. Yay, Euron gets his way, I guess. You know, square one for Euron. But uh, this also makes sense from a narrative point of view because George is going to have to start paring down his cast pretty hard. Remember that he promised point of view deaths in the Winds of Winter. So uh, those deaths are going to come from the low-hanging fruit. In the course of this series, we've talked about the people who are in danger, and it's always, you know, the people who are point of view characters, but more like secondary characters, right? And that's definitely Victorian Greyjoy. So having four point of view characters in Marine is simply too much once the battle concludes and Danny returns. So Marine is ripe for point of view deaths, let's face it, guys. So will Victorian die in battle? Will he die by dragon flame like his predecessor as unannounced Westerosi suitor did? Will he die by Relore's fire or by the Hellhorn? Personally, I'd like to see it be the Hellhorn. I'll share something with you that I, I read on Reddit one time, a theory that Victorian would take the place of the third thrall and end up blowing the horn himself. Then, of course, he would catch on fire as you do, and throw his flaming armor-clad body into the sea and upon the mercy of his two gods, ultimately dying by both burning and drowning at the same time. <laughs> I kind of love it. Uh, it's poetic. It's simple. It's amply prefigured in the text. Uh, so, yeah, could be that. Uh, it could be any number of other things. Uh, it could be poisoned by his friend, the Dusky Woman. But... Uh, yeah, not not high chances of survival. Sorry, Uncle Vicky. <laughs> yeah, I think as we've been going through this, I'm like, oh, another way he could die. Another way he could die. Another way There's he could so die. many ways. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's not looking good. So I'll admit the more time I spent reading his POV chapters and prepping for this live stream, the more I kind of got attached to Victorian. That said, I think you're on the right track here that we're unlikely to see him return victor uh, victorious as he imagines and see the end of the series. Um, over on the Isle of Faces, where I'm kind of a guest co-host, Sir Buckley and I were recently uh, going through the POVs left and analyzing who we thought were the most likely to get the axe in the Winds of Winter. Victorian made both of our lists. <laughs> you know, if uh, from a Doyleist perspective outside of the text, you know, there's a ton of POVs right now. They won't all be needed as they coalesce around Daenerys, as, as we've already covered. Uh, Tyrion and Danny particularly have a ton of unfinished business, so that leaves Barristan and Victorian, both of whom have had short stints as POVs. Um, you know, they, they, <laughs> their deaths are a little bit more foretold, especially Victorian's, as we've covered here. 
And then in story, we have to look at the, you know, the primary recurrent themes that are present in Victorian's POV. And the main one that's really pointing is really pointing back to Euron. You know, you like we said before, you barely get through a page without seeing the crow, crow's eye in his thoughts, his words, his choices. We've covered their rivalry and Victorian living in his shadow. We've covered their struggle for ownership of Dragonbinder and of the Dragon Queen. I think whatever his fate, Euron is going to come into it, whether that be through the Dusky Woman, the Horn, or simply just because he expected his manipulation of Victorian to get him roasted by a dragon. All that said, I wouldn't count him out entirely yet. His battle prowess and his undeniable strength that he'll bring to Daenerys' cause will all protect him, at least in the short term, for the pages to come. Yeah, I think I'd like to keep an open mind. There's a decent amount of debate in the fandom as to what the future holds in store for Victorian. Some do believe the conflict with his brother is well established in the text and that it's groundwork for a more protracted story between the two leading through the Winds of Winter. So I see the logic of that. Many other readers, however, believe there's enough ominous signs, such as the prophetic rumblings of Makoro, to conclude that Victorion will be made short work of in the upcoming no novel. As you both said, George has got a start culling those POVs at some point and Victorians might not be necessary so he's not on a good standing there with the imagery of Victorian being puppeteered by Euron the dark mystique surrounding the hellhorn the fire breathing dragon circling overhead and the sense that however independent he might think he is that he doesn't really know what he's doing could amount to trouble for Victorian He's not quite as deeply rooted in the plot as a lot of other POVs. And I think earlier Lady Gwyn said that perhaps his, you know, overall purpose was to deliver this fleet and that that is possible. So, yeah, it comes back to George saying Victorion is as dumb as a stump. Perhaps that will lead to his eventual downfall. This is at the time he really needs to be smart to survive the chaos of Marine. And for all of these reasons, you know, many people argue that he's not going to last long in the Winds of Winter. But fan consensus is not canon. The fandom is often wrong about things. So those who love Victorion will be hoping that he proves a few people wrong and that he displays his metal and resilience and all those qualities we know he does have all the way back to Westeros. We can look forward to the day when all of this is settled and we know what's what when we have the winds of winter in our greedy hands. But until then, the debates like this will continue to smoke away like Victorian's fiery hand. Okay, guys, thanks to everyone for joining us today. That's the end of the live stream, but don't go just yet because we want to say thank you very, very much to Emily of the Eerie hailing from the Isle of Faces. Why don't you tell us what you're up to and where to find you? Sure. Uh, well, as you just said, I, I uh, you can find me occasionally on the Isle of Faces with Sir Buckley. Right now, we're nearing the halfway point of our series, 100 Questions on the Winds of Winter. We've we just put out our fourth installment, so we're up to question 40 right now. If you have questions about the winds of winter and would like to hear our opinion on them, please tweet them to us. Uh, I'm at Emily of the Erie on Twitter, pretty easy, or Sir Buckley works as well. 
that's that's the main thing I'm up to. I, I also, like you mentioned earlier, I'm a, I'm a moderator on the Radio Westeros Discord. Again, reminder that the link to that is in the video description here. Yeah. Yeah. Come on down if you're not there already and join us. Yeah. Thank you, Emily, so much for being here. This was a lot of fun. We're very happy to have you here. Thanks to everyone else who joined us today. And also hello and thank you to listeners in the future, because of course this uh, live stream will be available on YouTube in perpetuity. And uh, within a few days, we'll have the audio version out as well. So thank you, everyone, as always. Uh, what's next for Radio Westeros? Uh, right now, we are working on our the part four of our Dance of the Dragons series with History of Westeros. Hey to Z's. Uh, he just, I saw him in the chat just a minute or so ago. So we're uh, working on that and that'll be with you shortly. Uh, also soon to come, not long after that, will be the concluding episode in our Winds of Winter primer series, which will cover Daenerys in the Dothraki Sea. That's a big one. So thanks again, everyone, for being here. Don't forget to like and subscribe. Yeah, we're, we're going to finish our series of live streams guys i think we've got three or four more povs to go but we're gonna get through it we're gonna have a lot of fun with the concluding povs that are all related to marine so we'll be back with more a special shout out to all of our discord mods and our chat room mods you guys do such a great job we don't know where we'd be without you thanks also to each and every one of our patrons who support us if you want to support radio westeros as an official patron check out our Patreon campaign, which includes all manner of incentives, including personalized shout-outs, early releases, and more. I'm so glad that we made it through this vicious thunderstorm. I don't know if you can hear it, but it's been growling all the way through this recording. And we hope you have a great weekend, guys. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we'll see you soon. Hey, bye for now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.